You're listening to Malta Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, sir. Welcome to another edition of Wasail Al-Ilama Sadiqa Truthful News. And Alhamdulillah, your Friday evening special where we get George Galloway and friends to give you the news in the news. The news in between the lines. The news away from mainstream media and the news that will put you in the box, in the picture. So Alhamdulillah, sit back. A lot of uh, topics to be discussed uh, this evening, Ukraine and Slovenia and, you know, what uh, uh, the indebted to the Chinese and so forth. So just sit back and inshallah, enjoy George Galloway and friends. A couple of minutes left to turn to the other big issue. I did a television program for uh, Middle East impact of the economic war launched against Russia by North American and Western European countries, European countries in general. We discovered in the course of the show that not only is the ruble the best performing currency of 2022, it has started 2023 with a bang. And the US dollar has fallen below 70 for the first time in many years in relation to the ruble. We discovered that external debt has fallen in the last 12 months, not risen. And that can be compared to the United States level of indebtedness, which the last time I looked was 300 trillion US dollars. A very great deal of it owed to China, which is the biggest creditor of the United States and its economy, its Ponzi scheme economy. Not only that, Slovenia increased its imports from Russia of 341%. Makes you wonder what Slovenia has done with all those Russian imports. Last time I looked, Slovenia was a very small place with a very small population. I don't know, maybe they're selling them on somewhere. Germany has increased its imports from Russia by 49%. The Russian economy is booming as the German, French, Dutch, European, British economies are collapsing in this bleak midwinter. But then we turned from the economic war which undoubtedly represents a gigantic stone which we have struggled to lift only to drop on our own feet, we turned to the actual war on the ground. Do you remember, it's not that long ago, when they were telling you Ukraine was winning the war? You remember that? You remember when every television station and newspaper in this land, and I assume in your land, was telling you that Ukraine was winning the war? They can't even any longer to the most credulous, even to the reader of the National Enquirer, peddle that line anymore. Yesterday was the heaviest bombardment of Russian missiles on Ukrainian cities of the whole war. Russia's 600,000 reinforcements 
are now lined up in a big line which can advance either at any particular point or points or all of it together. Now that they have taken Solidar, and now according to the Washington Post, Ukraine is about to evacuate from Bakhmut with its shills telling us it's of no military significance when they told us the fight was so vital because of its immense strategic defense importance. Now that the encirclement and kettling of army after army of the Ukrainian armed forces in the eastern part of Ukraine is now throttling the very life out of poor Ukrainian soldiers who are now surrendering in large numbers and those who don't, alas, are dying in large numbers, whilst their president cavorts online with his Hollywood pals at the Golden Globes. The war has turned disastrously against NATO. A private military company, Wagner, not even the Russian armed forces, a group of Russian mercenaries, liberated Solidar from the NATO armies. And we keep getting treated to news flashes. Germany is giving leopard tanks. And then it turns out the tanks will not be arriving until 2024, when the war will be over. Challenger tanks, but only 12 of them in a country of 600,000 square miles across a front which stretches from the Black Sea to the Baltic. This war is being lost now at a catastrophic rate for NATO, which has depleted virtually its entire inventory of munitions and weapons that it requires for its own defense. I've joked here before, if Russia wanted to keep the tanks rolling, they could reach Berlin and nobody would be able to stop them because all the equipment has been given to Ukraine and destroyed except where it ends up on the black market. Well, enough from me because after me, be addressing the no to NATO, no to war rally on the 25th of February in central London. Uh, a new venue has been secured, bigger and better than the old one. It's the last laugh that counts, NAFO. Uh, Max is, uh, as I said, journalistic royalty. It's always a privilege to talk to him. And he joins us now from the United States. Max Blumenthal, welcome. Uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Can we start with that pretty little silver Corvette? As you know, I like cars, and I especially like Corvettes. So when I saw that glistening silver Corvette, I could hardly take my eyes off it until I spotted a pile of highly classified American government secret documents sitting piled up in the garage behind it. How did that happen? 
Well, first of all, George, I'm looking forward to joining you at Wembley Stadium on the 25th. Um, I guess that's not central London, but I'm looking forward to finding out where the new venue is and hope to see everyone there. We'll strategically release that information, Max. (laughs) Good, yeah, well, that will be more strategic than what Biden has done. He said that everyone need not worry because these documents were in a locked garage. Well, Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago was raided by federal agents to spirit out classified documents. And we were told that this was a major national security threat and that any of the goons who visited Mar-a-Lago could have gained access to these documents that had details about nuclear discussions with Russia. Now, the investigation into Trump concerns his obstruction with relation to these documents, that his team did not want to give access to these documents. With Biden, what it looks like to me is that someone outside of Team Biden gained wind that there were classified documents stored all across Biden world, from Biden's residence in Wilmington, Delaware, to the Penn Biden Center, which is in Philadelphia and is basically a patronage farm for the Biden political network. And so they had to get out ahead of the story because his mishandling of documents was far more sloppy and catastrophic than Trump's. And remember, the American media went crazy over Trump's documents in the raid. And it was, you know, there's anticipation that Trump was going to be arrested and he'd never be able to run for president. And now it doesn't look so good for the partisan defenders of Biden. But the question is, how many more documents will we see? Why are members of Team Biden with no security clearance the ones to look for these documents, how do they know where they are if they're in like eight different places? And what are they about? Because we know the documents at the Penn Biden Center relate to Ukraine. And we know that the Penn Biden Center at the time when these documents were brought there in 2018 was run by Michael Carpenter, who is Biden's personal Ukraine handler, who personally oversaw the construction of the post-Maidan junta, and who has been involved at every step of the way in laying the groundwork for this proxy war with Ukraine. So what do these documents concern? See why Joe Biden would not want to leave behind the documentation which establishes uh, the uh, close, not to put too fine a point on it, relationship between the Biden family business and the Ukrainian oligarchs, some of them in government now, some of them in government before, all of them still players on the Ukrainian uh, scene. And the, the money, you see, follow the money has been a rubric uh, ever since yeah. Deep Throat and Watergate. If you follow the money on Ukraine, you might get some answers to why the United States is taking the world to the brink of world war over Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the issue. So I think that it's pretty fair to say that this was not an accident. That's the Biden line. I don't know what the content of the documents is, so this is pure speculation, but we do know that Biden's son was on the board of Burisma, was heavily involved also with Metabiota, with his business partner, Devin Archer. uh, a private firm that seemed to be involved in some kind of shady biowarfare programs in Ukraine. We know that Biden's first visit 
to Kiev was in February 2015, and he went there specifically to ask the IMF to start providing loans to Ukraine and start the entire austerity program. All of these loans went into the hands of oligarchs like Kolomoisky, who's Zelensky's biggest backer and the backer of the Azov Battalion. We know that Joe Biden fired the special prosecutor who was looking into his son's shady dealings. And we also know that Michael Carpenter, who is the head of the of the Penn Biden Center, where many of these documents concerning Ukraine were found, was on stage with Joe Biden sitting right next to him at the Council on Foreign Relations when Biden boasted of firing that special prosecutor, Victor Shokin. So Biden is heavily invested in and you could even say mobbed up with this corrupt post-Maidan regime. And to the extent that he has documents that relate to Ukraine, classified documents as personal residence at the Penn Biden Center, we need to know what the contents are because we need to know if there is some kind of cover up at play. So do you think uh, I'm uh, wrong then in imagining that the Democrats have turned on Biden, that these things have been leaked as a prelude uh, to pushing him off the stage? metaphorically uh, speaking. Uh, you think that these, uh, the, the, this news was rushed out because it might have emerged from more hostile sources? Well, that's one theory inside the Beltway right now, is that the, the Democrats and you know the regime, the permanent bureaucracy that comprises what people refer to as the deep state, elements of the national security state, uh, but also you know Democratic Party elites want to get rid of Biden because the rumor in town is that Biden is determined to run again in 2024. He doesn't seem to be very mentally competent. He's not the most popular president. But behind him, who do we have? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who's presiding over some of the worst delays and cancellations we've ever seen on flights in the U.S. He's becoming a hated figure. He was being put up as a successor to Biden. And then Kamala Harris, as you mentioned, George, who doesn't seem to be a very mentally competent either, even though she's not as advanced in the years as Biden. She won absolutely zero delegates in the Democratic 2020 primary. She was extremely unpopular even among black voters, historically unpopular for a black candidate. Terrible situation, so I don't see why, or in a difficult situation, so I don't see why they would uh, deliberately cripple their most nationally known figure, the president. I think this has more to do with Team Biden trying to limit the inevitable damage on a much more uh, problematic situation than we even understand right now. Now, I may be naive, I don't know American prices, uh, but uh, $50,000 a month rent uh, when your landlord is your own father uh, struck me as uh, particularly odd. As a father, I can't imagine charging my children for living at my house, let alone charging them a rent that a prince would pay for a property, especially in Delaware. I mean, I don't know yeah. Delaware, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's not Beverly Hills. Yeah. Well, I mean, Joe Biden has said his son did absolutely nothing wrong. And there's, he's, he's, he's flown on Air Force One. He's still part of part of the picture of the Biden network. The House Republicans won enough seats to initiate an investigation on the laptop and everything else. 
this is going to become a major campaign issue. So I, I do see an impetus for pushing Biden aside. I don't know if this is it, but the relationship with Hunter Biden and the corruption, him asking for 70 or $80,000 while he was on a, a crack-fueled prostitute spree is a pretty good uh, – it, it's, it's almost like a, a, a microcosm of the whole Ukraine proxy war, where, as Hillary Clinton has said, all of the aid that we're sending to Ukraine is an investment in ourselves. She said that last month. It's so, sort of a, a, a boast about corruption and money laundering because we're sending – raking money from the pockets of U.S. taxpayers who are hurting like never before uh, on the dawn, on the, at, the, at the precipice of a recession and sending it to Ukraine. It's being washed through Ukrainian warlords and oligarchs. We don't know where it's going. Congress refuses an audit and it's coming back to the Beltway bandits, Deloitte, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, you know, the private spies, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and then they're pumping money into the pockets of members of Congress to continue voting for the aid. It's the most corrupt situation, very reminiscent of Afghanistan. And it sort of goes, it all goes back to what took place when Biden became the imperial vice lord of the post-Maidan junta in 2015. Now, you conducted uh, a, a wonderful conversation with Matt Tybee, the, the lead writer on the Twitter files. I urge everyone to see it, but... For our audience, Max, in summary, what did you make of Tybee's take on what's been going on at Twitter? Well, yeah, thanks for, for pointing people to that discussion. I really benefited from it. There were things I did not know that Matt divulged. Uh, I thought one of the biggest takeaways was Matt's opinion that Elon Musk may have bought Twitter specifically to do this, to essentially burn down the state censorship regime that's been erected, especially since Russiagate, to put pressure on social media companies and the media itself to push these new Cold War narratives and to basically censor anyone who dissents or who dissented from the uh, biomedical security state that was being erected under the uh, uh, behind the under the rubric of COVID restrictions. So we've learned a lot from these leaks. And what we talked with Matt about was specifically how the leaks that he's obtained have exposed how the plague of Russian bots, which we were told influenced the outcome of the 2016 election and then interfered in the process of American democracy and American society itself to pit us against each other and polarize American society, was a complete fabrication of the House and Senate intelligence committees, which were run by the Democrats and heavily influenced by the CIA. And that Twitter was placed under so much pressure through those intelligence committees and the corporate media, which was breathing down their neck. And even though Twitter knew there were no real Russian bots, the whole thing was fake, they refused to say so in public because of their fear of being hammered in the media. And so the problem festered. And as we pointed out in this broadcast, when people are led to believe, millions of Americans are led to believe that Russia is interfering in their politics and that these bots are everywhere and that anyone they could be talking to online could be a Russian bot, that Russians were even planning protests through Facebook. They start to hate Russia. And so what took place was greasing the skids for the Ukraine proxy war, which so many Americans initially reflexively supported without thinking about the context behind it. So this is a dangerous process. And it's so important that Matt and other reporters exposed it and 
you know, another thing we discussed, George, was how did how he got these leaks. Essentially, he and others were chosen by Elon Musk. They go to Twitter headquarters and they ask, they put in requests for specific hashtags and topics, and then they collate the documents that they receive. And Matt said that they are not well liked inside Twitter headquarters, that many of the employees and the people, you know, executives who may be left over are not particularly happy about this. Um, It's not making, it's not good for Twitter's brand, but it's good for whatever's left of democracy. It's good for transparency. And so I support what they're doing. You correctly in that conversation and in other places too, have identified the Russia gate hoax as being, uh, in a way, the original sin. Of course, there have been many more sins before that. But the original sin of this era, which has yeah. now put us on the precipice. Uh, Scott Ritter, uh, in very dramatic uh, language, uh, talking of death on a pale horse riding towards us, the possibility of nuclear Armageddon. This The germ of all this was located, wasn't it, in in what now even its best friends would have to accept was a complete hoax. There was no Russian interference in the American elections. There was American state interference in the American elections right up until the midterms where they covered up these these, uh, confidential secret documents. Uh, inadvertently mislaid by Joe Biden. As uh, Edward Snowden said, I wish I'd thought of that excuse. This Russiagate hoax, it's hard to overstate or exaggerate how important that has been in bringing the whole world to this point, isn't it? It was, Russiagate was a concoction of a coalition of Clintonite dead-enders who wanted to explain away the defeat of their candidate who believed she was deigned to become Queen of America in 2016, and Cold War-minded spooks like John Brennan. And, you know, it had a double-edged effect, therefore. First, it convinced many Americans, especially Democrats, partisan Democrats, that Trump only won because of assistance from Russia. And so the party that had always had traditionally some wing of opponents of uh, Reagan's Cold War, for example, during Iran-Contra, became the Cold War party almost instantly. And then the new Cold Warriors, the spooks and the neocons, they gained control over that party and over essentially the media. And there was no resistance any longer to pushing for, for example, sending offensive lethal weaponry to Ukraine and setting the stage for the proxy war, which, as we know by comments from Angela Merkel and others, a Marine general named uh, James Bierman said last week that this war was always inevitable, that it was planned for ever since the 2014 Maidan coup. And so you can just look at the chronology of events. I mean, starting from the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union, but moving forward from 2014. I mean, 2014 was the real fulcrum point when a nationalist, oligarchic, pro-NATO regime was installed through violence and U.S. meddling in Kiev. And everything from there that followed 
made something like Russiagate inevitable. And anything Trump did, many much of what he did was also what Obama did, for example, refusing to send offensive lethal weaponry to Ukraine, was portrayed as something influenced by Putin. And so what Russiagate did was it criminalized diplomacy with Russia, as the late, great Stephen Cohen put it. So we're now at a point where it's unclear how any channel of communication can be restored with Russia to prevent us from going to the precipice of nuclear war. And any attempt to challenge this mad push for endless escalation with Russia and Washington, and I experience this all the time, my colleagues experience this all the time, is portrayed as some you're, you're portrayed as a Kremlin shill. I mean, we saw a representative, a member of Congress, Ted Lieu, accused Matt Taibbi of being of mouthing Kremlin talking points simply for exposing these Twitter leaks. So that's how Washington is now. McCarthyism is on overdrive. Negotiations have been criminalized, and we're marching to the brink thanks to this Russiagate hoax. And that's really why I challenged it in the first place instantly when it emerged. Indeed you did. Uh, lastly, and I'm grateful for your time, as always, Max. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Where does all this leave Trump? Is he dead political meat? Or could he make a comeback in the light of all these new developments we've been discussing? Well, no candidate in U.S. politics, national politics right now, has the constituency Trump has. Nor do they have the name recognition, the brand, or the kind of uh, organic political network that gives them the ability to turn on the switch in swing states and compete. But you can see that Trump is being challenged internally from within the Republican Party for the first time. And it's not by a typical corporate Republican candidate who would be portrayed as a rhino or Republican in name only by Trump supporters. It's Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who stood up against the COVID restrictions, won a lot of support, um, especially he made him a national right wing hero. And, you know, he's he's branded himself as sort of the anti woke governor. He's taken on critical race theory and all of these this identity politics. But he has a background as a lawyer for the U.S. military who participated in the torture of detainees at Guantanamo Bay and everything in Ron DeSantis' record going back to his time in Congress as a member of the Freedom Caucus in the House, the kind of right-wing Freedom Caucus, shows that he doesn't differ much from someone like Mike Pompeo on foreign policy. And so I think he's a lot less threatening to the national security state than Donald Trump is. Donald Trump, who went to Korea to meet with Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump, who attempted to have a summit with Putin and negotiate several treaties on inter intermediate ballistic missiles, for example. Uh, Trump, who actually referred to Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela as a tough leader who's probably going to stay, referred to him as president in the middle of this coup attempt. Donald Trump did so many things that upset the national security state, and Ron DeSantis seems like a more steady, if actually more aggressive hand, and so you can even see centrist Democrats uh, egging DeSantis on to run. And so I think we're going to see Trump challenge in a way he hasn't been before. And you can see Trump's base fracturing slightly right now. Max Blumenthal, see you on the 20th. Well, what do you want me to say?
Rob. Rob. Go back to the show, my friend. I think it uh, must be uh, a little bit more important what Rob's partner says to him than George Galloway. So that means he's a good man. shifted, audibly shifted. People know who's up, who's down in the world. People can read the runes. Even the kings of Arabia have uh, come to that conclusion. So it would be surprising if as wily an old fox as, uh, as Erdogan uh, had not noticed those tectonic plates shifting. So uh, in, in, in the words of Groucho Marx, I think when the facts change, so do my opinions. And uh, I think the facts have changed, and so Erdogan's opinions are changing with it. Biden's not uh, going quietly, though. He's just uh, offered uh, Turkey a $20 billion uh, military procurement deal that the U.S. has been delaying on for a long time for fighter jets. Uh, and that was, as far as I can see, not conditional on uh, Turkey not buying Russian anti-aircraft missiles, the S-300s, having already bought the S-200s. Uh, and in the past, that was holding up the supply of U.S. fighter jets to the Turkish Air Force. The U.S. Uh, harbors uh, the main opposition to Erdogan uh, in Langley, Virginia. I mean, they're not hiding it. It's not as if he's been given somewhere neutral to live. He's actually living in Langley, Virginia, and uh, he mounted a coup against Erdogan not that long ago, uh, three, four years ago now, which uh, came closer than many people think to toppling Erdogan, certainly killing Erdogan. Uh, so uh, I think Erdogan is turning. I think his reconciliation publicly with uh, President Assad of Syria cannot be much longer delayed. That will be a big blow to American prestige in the area, especially as American forces continue to illegally occupy a part of Syria and steal, literally steal its oil, using Kurdish forces to, uh, to truck that stolen oil out of the country and no one quite knows where the profits from that are going. Are they going to the Kurds? Are they going to the big guy? Who knows where that money is uh, going? Uh, so I think uh, that Turkey will shift 
uh, whether it will entirely shift is, of course, another matter. Thank you so much, Lance. We haven't got back to Southend where uh, some domestic difference was discernible. When we did get through, we'll hear. Uh, Robert P. on YouTube says, how many more the news that their husbands, fathers, grandfathers and sons won't be coming home? May monsters responsible for this war burn in hell. And the happy little fox, a.k.a. Benji, says those who seek Russia's defeat on the battlefield probably had a poor education, don't know history very well, and do not understand what Russia is. That's a quote from Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia. Tanya Keen says, a hundred planes have arrived in Davos. A hundred. And one of them flew only 27 kilometers. You'd think he would have just driven in the Escalade. Uh, Commandante says there are 5,000 Swiss soldiers protecting Klaus Schwab and the WEF meeting. 5,000 soldiers. Captain Blimp says these are exactly the people that the world could do without. If they went, millions of lives could be saved. Rob is back. The domestic is over. And he's here with us from South End. Rob, welcome. Uh, George? Yes, mate. What would you like to say? Well, I don't know about the domestic. Well, there was a bit of to and fro in the house going on when we were uh, trying to talk to the, you. My, my wife is a nurse, and I've uh, just decorated the uh, downstairs hall, and uh, there, there was a lot of issues about cats and things, but that was, was it. She, was, was she complaining you hadn't finished the job, or that the job wasn't up to scratch, or what? <laughs> plate 
making their own country great again. Rob, thanks for the call. Uh, Johnny Enough says, Senator Maria Cantwell of my state is going there, to Ukraine, I presume, 7,000 kilometers away for reasons unknown. She's not a state senator, but a U.S. senator. And Alpaca, my bag, that's a good name, Alpaca, my bag, says, George, I love it. You've got the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all on tonight. Thank you uh, for that, Steve. Madeline Swords says, if it can roll up, uh, stop the war and fix the pipeline and stop paying inflated utility bills. Why are we buying gas from the USA at four times the price? As my kids would say, dunno. Uh, now, uh, I've, I've, I've missed my 8 o'clock mark right after this shortly under bombardment. The building next to him was hit just yesterday. As I understand it, on another broadcast earlier today, he disappeared halfway through because all his lights went out. It is extraordinary that this man has the clarity and the courage to continue to tell the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. He's in Kharkov, but he joins you now for the global audience that loves to see him so much. Gonzalo, uh, the fall of Soledar, the potential now evacuation uh, of Bakhmut, the extraordinary bombardment of virtually every important Ukrainian city over the last 48 hours. The war has begun to turn big time, hasn't it? Uh, yes, it most certainly has. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you so much for your very, very kind words. You know that I'm a huge fan of yours, and I will always thank you for, uh, you know, paying attention to me and looking after me and, and that unpleasantness back in April. Uh, no, and, and in fact, you mentioned that uh, the building next to mine had been struck. It wasn't yesterday. It was uh, uh, back in early September when the missile strikes ha started happening. And so, yeah, I've got great photographs, but I can't show them because they give away my current location. But privately, I'm happy to send you the pictures because they're pretty cool. Anyway, the point is... Um, yeah, what's going on now in the in the front in the Donbass region is that you see, uh, since the start of this war, the uh, the Kiev regime installed basically three lines of defense, and the Russians have been grinding through them. Now, the first line of defense was uh, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, uh, Popasnaya, That line, which was breached in July first, I believe, of twenty twenty two. And here, they, uh, now the Russians are, have been grinding through the second line of defense, which is the Bakhmut line. And Solidar is a, uh, essentially a suburb. It's a separate town, but basically a suburb of Bakhmut. It's a city or town of 10,000 people before the start of this conflict. And it mattered because, you see, uh, uh, this line of Bakhmut-Solidar, uh, north-south line, basically was the second um, and perhaps the strongest line of defense that the Kiev regime had installed. They've been building these defenses for the past seven, eight years since uh, the signing of Minsk II agreements. And so the, the, the capture of Solidar is a very important moment. It's basically the penultimate town of the penultimate defensive line. You see, once they uh, captured Solidar, they have essentially encircled the city of Bakhmut. 
There's only one road of escape for Bakhmut. And um, what the Zelensky regime is doing is that they are actually trying to hold on to Bakhmut by pouring more troops into it, which is incredibly demoralizing because the troops realize that they're going into certain death. And so, you know, they're just throwing away lives willy-nilly. Um, people, a lot of people are saying in the West that Solidar and Bakhmut don't matter. They do. They do enormously. Because, you see, this was the center, the centerpiece of the defensive line to hold back any Russian onslaught. And once your defensive lines are fully breached, there's nothing holding them back. Okay, And furthermore, the city of Bakhmut is a very important uh, transportation hub. Several highways and several train lines cross through it. And so that's why <coughs> excuse me, it was the centerpiece of the second defensive line of the uh, Kiev regime. Now, after they, uh, the Russians finally breach through this second line, once they have captured Bakhmut, which will not be tomorrow, it will take uh, a few days, if perhaps not even a couple of weeks, but once they finally do capture it, the only further line, the third defensive line, is on the city of Kramatorsk. But this third line is the weakest of the lines. Inevitable, because it's much easier to overrun it than the current Bakhmut line. Then there's going to be basically clean, uh, clear sailing. I mean, just a, a flat terrain with no defensive positions between uh, Kramatorsk and the city of Dnepro, formerly Dnepropetrovsk, which is on the Dnepro River. This would essentially mean that the Russians would capture uh, the bulk of eastern Ukraine. This would be a huge deal. And the way things are going, this is an inevitability because Solara has been captured. Um, Bakhmut is about to be captured. It's encircled by three sides of the three roads leading out of it. Two of them are controlled by the Russians, either fire control or they have outright possession of the roads. So the, the forces in Bakhmut have only a single road out. It's not under fire control, but that it eventually will be under fire control. And so once Bakhmut falls, the next line will be Kramatorsk, which is far weaker than the Bakhmut line. And once they overrun that, once the Russians overrun that line, then that would be the ball game insofar as Eastern Ukraine is concerned. And so there's a lot of speculation going on insofar as the offensives that are, that are, that are gaining, gaining pace, because it's clear that the Russians are preparing a big winter offensive, but nobody's quite sure where. At this time, it's credibly estimated that 650,000 uh, Russian soldiers are on the borders of Ukraine. A big grouping is in southern Belarus, just across the border from Ukraine, from the northern border, the northwestern border of Ukraine. Another big grouping is in the uh, Belgorod uh, Oblast, which is literally uh, uh, 50 kilometers away from my position. And then there's the uh, third grouping that's in the Donbass region and the south of the country. It's sort of like spread out. It's not as concentrated as the others, other two. And so nobody's quite sure what the Russians have in mind. Of course, the Russians probably have a very clear idea of what they're about to do, but they're just not telling anybody. And there's, um, you know, operational security has been incredibly good. So nobody has any clue, any realistic idea of what the Russians are going to do next. But we are we have reached a, a key moment in this battle, in this war, rather. See, the, the breaching of the second line, and the fact that Solar has fallen and Bakhmut is, is all but done, it's inevitable. There's no way to save it. No, no number of troops will save it because the defensive fortifications have already been destroyed. And so even if more soldiers flood into it, they will not be in positions to defend themselves from the Russian onslaught. So Bakhmut is done. 
Okay, it's just a matter of time. And so from, from that perspective, you realize that we, we have tipped over insofar as the conflict in, uh, in its totality is concerned. Because if we think of the conflict starting on February 24th, as initially it was an expeditionary force that the Russians launched to essentially scare the Zelensky regime into negotiations. And that failed into the spring. And so in the summer, they reorganized and they started really in September for this grinding, constant offensive. Well, we're seeing the culmination of that grinding offensive that has just ground down the Ukrainian armed forces. And so now we're at the position where the Russians will achieve some sort of breakthrough. Now, how this plays out exactly, like I said, nobody knows. But this is the time to start paying very close attention to what things are going to the things that are going on. Yeah, uh, the Washington Post today uh, speculates uh, from mm -hmm. informed sources, they say, uh, that Zelensky will relent to uh, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces' demand that uh, there should be a withdrawal from Bakhmut uh, rather than wasting more men and more material uh, in, the, in the city, as you say. There's still one road out if they wanted to take it. And on your point yeah. about the, uh, the, the uh, Russian offensive, the winter offensive that is obviously coming somewhere, the British security service, MI6, uh, two days ago or three days ago, uh, warned everyone that in the next couple of weeks this offensive was going to be launched. But as you say, Nobody seems to know uh, where. Um, now, I'm tantalized by the Belarus build-up because, of yeah. course, <laughs> crossing uh, from Belarusia would uh, bring Belarus into the war proper for a start, but would, uh, would run the risk of confrontation with Polish forces that might very well enter. Uh, the west of the country. As, as you know better than me, uh, Poland regards much of western Ukraine as actually being theirs in any case. I wonder yeah. if you think a movement across the Belarusian border is A, uh, a real possibility, and B, what would its consequence be? Okay, that's a very good good question. Now, is it possible? Certainly. I mean, you do have to keep in mind that the Russians, when they position troops wherever, and this is true for every military, whenever they position uh, troops anywhere, they have multiple possibilities of where to put those forces and what to do with them. They might put some troops there just as a holding uh, mission to hold to pin down some opposing army, or they might put them there to attack. Or they could just put them there and have both plans ready to roll, whatever circumstances dictate what's most favorable. Now, insofar as um, uh, Russia attacking from Belarus, which would, of course, bring in Belarus into this conflict, and the Poles. Okay, so we have multiple problems going on with Poles. Recently, uh, President Duda of Poland was in Lviv, and he was received like a rock star. Like, uh, you know, like a celebrity. And, and you have to keep in mind the city of Lviv in western Ukraine is historically Polish. It's barely, um, I want to say something like 60 or 80 kilometers from the border. I actually rode that road from the border of Poland and Ukraine to the city of Lviv on my motorcycle. But I, I forgot. But it's something like that. It's, it's not far, is my point. And so the issue becomes, you know, 
will the Poles decide to put troops on the ground and take what they consider to be historically Polish territory? Because the city of Lviv and, and that area, geographic area, uh, you know, they, they, the Galicia, they consider it theirs. Part of Galicia also extends into what is southwestern uh, Belarus as well. And so will they go into it? Now, it's not clear if they have the troops to do that. Um, I, I, I'm frozen. I don't know if you guys can see me. Yes, we can. Uh, yes. The, okay, great. Uh, what happens is that the, um, the, the Poles, at this time, they have an army of 150,000 men. I mean, that, that's the Polish army today. But what has happened is that uh, as of November, they uh, did a call-up of 200,000 men. These were, you know, untrained men who are going to have to be trained. And so that'll take a good minimum six months, closer to nine months to a year. But clearly, the, the Poles are getting ready for some conflict. I mean, they wouldn't be calling up 200,000 men, i.e. more than their current armed force, unless they were preparing for war. They've also uh, gone forward with a lot of weapons purchases from the West, weapons that will be delivered into 2024 and 2025 and, and, and forward on. Tanks, uh, helicopters, artillery especially, because artillery is proving itself to be the god of war once again. And so uh, the Poles are clearly getting ready for some sort of uh, military uh, conflict. I mean, you don't invest that amount of money and time and effort into doubling your army unless you're very serious about getting something that you want, militarily speaking. So... The issue will become for the Russians a, a very delicate political balance and a timing issue. See, on the one hand, they don't want to provoke the Poles. But on the other hand, they want to wrap this up before the Poles have an actual army that could cause problems for them. And when I say they want to wrap this up, I mean that they want to capture the entirety of Ukraine. You do have to keep in mind, if you have, as the Russians do, if you have an army of 650,000 men surrounding a country, which is what the Russians have at this point, 650,000 men is not for a war. 650,000 men is for the occupation of the entire country. I mean, that's clearly what that army is about, okay? So the Russians probably already have a clear idea that what they have to do is they have to capture all of Ukraine before the Poles are in a position to do anything about it, militarily speaking. Because you do have to remember something that's key. The Russians no longer trust the West at all especially with the revelations by Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande. Uh, Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, Francois Hollande, the former president of France, both of them were in power in 2015 when they negotiated the Minsk II agreements that were passed by the UN Security Council, uh, which gave a pathway to peace in Ukraine insofar as the Donbass region is concerned. And both Hollande and Merkel have said in interviews, recent interviews, they have said that they had no intention of implementing those agreements and that they were just a way to buy time to arm Ukraine. Now, this has gone over in Russia like a lead balloon because they look at this and they say, oh, so any agreement we'd sign with these people will not be honored. And it's just a cynical ploy to rearm the Ukrainians. So therefore, we cannot negotiate with the West, or much less with the Zelensky regime, insofar as a ceasefire, we have to go for broke. We have to go and capture the whole country. 
I mean, that's what's happened because of these revelations that nobody in the Western media is talking about. The fact that Merkel and Hollande said that the Minsk II agreements were just a way to buy time and that they were signed in, in, in an insincere, practically fraudulent manner, that has gone over terribly with Russia. And the Kremlin in particular, they basically realized we cannot negotiate with them because any agreement we sign, any peace deal we sign, isn't going to be worth the paper it's printed on. So ultimately, we have to capture the whole country. I mean, it, it, this is a key point that people have to understand. The Russians are not going to negotiate. They're not going to stop. And for the Russians, since this is an existential crisis, they're going to put everything necessary to win. And the Russians, you know, they have a lot of flaws, like we all do. Uh, but, you know, I, I've said this before, you know, the, the Italians are, are great at food and the French are great at fashion. And, but the Russians, they're good at war and they're going to win this. And it's an inevitability. The only question for the Russians is they will have to accelerate the pace of this at some point to prevent the Poles from coming into Ukraine as they are clearly intending to do. Because this uh, tour by President Duda in Lviv and this buildup of military forces by the Poles, they're not doing it by chance or just for funsies. They're doing it because they have their eye on Galicia or the, the Ukraine part of Galicia. They have their eye on the city of Lviv, which, is, as, as I said, is an important historical city for the Poles. And so the Russians want to make sure that Poland does not get in. And so that's why I think that the Russians are going to have to accelerate this. I've read a number of commentators and very astute individuals, and many of them seem to be thinking that the Russians probably have, as a timetable, the 1st of September to have this totally wrapped up. But this is pure speculation, so don't take this part to the bank. I mean, I just want to emphasize that. But yeah. it's reasonable. It's a reasonable speculation that the Russians will want to be done by the 1st of September to beat the Poles insofar as rearming and, and remanning their army. Because, like I said, the Poles have a, um, a current army of 150,000, and they are more than doubling it. It's 133%. That's the, the growth in this one call-up that they've done. And there seems to be even more call-ups in Poland in the pipes, in, in the legalistic uh, pipeline. And so we'll see what happens. But Poland is becoming an issue. And finally, and I'm sorry to bring this, you know, to keep on ranting, but there's another issue, too, that the West and the Americans, they recognize that the Zelensky regime is, you know, it's falling apart militarily. So I have speculated on my own uh, YouTube channel, and, and I think that this is reasonable, and you will have to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but... My thinking is that the Americans and NATO generally realize that the Zelensky regime militarily is no match for the Russians. And so they might be deliberately positioning the Poles as the next proxy to face the Russians. And okay, let's uh, leave it at that. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Lucolo for brilliant engineering this evening. And I hope uh, you enjoyed uh, the program as much as we enjoyed here at the studio Keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming. From the team and I, till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.